Escaped Sapiens. Our planet is covered with all sorts of life, and we have a pretty solid understanding of the evolutionary processes that led to all of its complexity. But evolution doesn't tell us anything about how life began in the first place. So how did it begin? Did it only occur once, and is it likely to happen elsewhere in the universe? In this episode of the Escape Sapiens podcast, I speak with Lee Cronin, who is the Regius Chair of Chemistry at the University of Glasgow in the UK. Lee is attempting to create artificial life in the laboratory by searching for sequences of chemical reactions that are able to retain information and build up complexity at each step. In other words, he's attempting to go from basic chemistry to the sort of complexity that might be thought of as some form of artificial proto-life. If successful, Lee's work has the potential to tell us about the kind of processes that may have led to the origins of life on our own planet. I hope you enjoy hearing what he has to say. How did you first get interested in in the origins of life or the pot potential mechanisms behind the origins of life? And uh, I mean, the reason why I ask is because this is one of these great questions that in overview, a child can understand, but which has extraordinarily deep science. So I'm wondering if you uh, grew up being interested or this is something that evolved through your research. I guess I've always, uh, no, I mean, I've always been interested since I can remember walking on the beach, you know, um, I've always wondered what my reality is and that that's been extended through various means and um, in terms of what I understood that the world was, you know. So um, I guess I'm just trying to think about what, what it was there really like, a, you know, one day when I woke up and said, oh, I've got to try and make an artificial life form and find, <laughs> no, I, 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 for me, I, I, um, I used to spend a lot of time uh, kind of outdoors or well I used to spend a lot of time playing around with things be it outdoors in a small workshop um, and just looking at stuff and understand and just un wanting to understand the mechanism for what by which that stuff had come about and I was always kind of obsessed with what I love technology since I was like as you know I was a gadget freak since I know at least nine years old if not younger love what we could actually do but then I was trying to I kind of obsessing of what knowledge do I need to have to recreate that technology? So I'm really, I was really interested in the chain of events that kind of got from, you know, I suppose let's take uh, Homo sapiens coming out of Africa for us suddenly becoming agricultural and then basically developing technologies and making that stepping stone to where we have, you know, nanoscale electronics now and um, control over information and matter and, and sensing modalities that we never had before. And so for me, understanding the origin of life is an extension of understanding the origin of our technology. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that that's, a, for me, a really important set of questions. And I would love to be able to recreate it. And I wouldn't really think about aliens and going to Mars. I mean, I don't particularly have going to Mars on my agenda, but maybe, um, but recreating my environment, what would I need to do? Maybe I'm, maybe I'm too much of an Englander, right? I'm living on an island. If I go to a desert island, what are the minimal things I need to take, to me, take with me to that island so I can have the life that I like having, you know, in terms of recreating everything I need, drugs, computation, or uh, facilities, you know, a warm place to sleep, stuff like that. Uh, speaking about the the chain of events that led up to our current technology, you know, in in our cultural uh, context that we sort of live in, um, when you think of the the origin of life, it's easy to think of it as being some sort of on off switch. But this is absolutely not the current scientific consensus, right? The, I should think of it more like an evolutionary process uh, where there was no 
not necessarily any distinct boundary between what we would view as being alive and I guess not alive. Is, is that the case? Um, it depends where you, which culture you come from, what tradition and what subject. So I think the chemists think that origin of life is their problem to own. And a lot of them think the origin of life is magic, which is kind of annoying, right? Because chemistry is not magic. Chemistry is scientific. Um, but what I think they're saying is that the origin of life was a very hard thing to have happened. Um, but that, I think, is, it displays a failure of imagination. Whereas I think the physicists who have to... And also, it's not a problem with the chemists. It's just the, sub, the way the subject is taught. Whereas I think if you're an astrophysicist, you've had to be a magician for a lot longer, or a cosmologist maybe, right? And so it's easy to imagine that there must be some continuum and there should be life elsewhere. But I mean, most people say, look, it's interesting. We, haven't, we have seen no evidence of life elsewhere. We haven't seen evidence against it. We just haven't seen evidence for it. And um, we don't really understand life itself. I think that's my point, is that I think the problem about defining the origin of life or thinking about it, we, don't, we can't even define life. Mm -hmm. So a lot, And a lot of chemists think the origin of life is kind of obvious and simple, and some think it's really hard and impossible. And the physicists are kind of saying, oh, of course it happened because physics is everywhere. And <laughs> all, those are, all those viewpoints are basically not wrong, but they lack evidence and a coherent framework on which we can have a discussion. So what I'm trying to do is to start again and say, look, why don't we just actually have reframe the argument and have a discussion and gather some evidence and come up with some theories and test them. We need anomaly. We need evidence anomaly and theory, probably in that order. But I don't mind having starting with a bit of theory, a bit of anomaly and a bit of evidence. But, you know, take your pick. I think you could see life as an anomaly. So what I mean is you look at the stuff on Earth and it's moving around, right? It seems to have inbuilt agency. And rocks don't walk around, but snails do. But snails look a bit like rocks, you know? They can move. So it's like, oh, that, which is the anomaly here? Is it the snail or the rock? Mm -hmm. I mean, so, for you, the rock, the rock could be the anomaly because it's not moving. If you're, if you're on an island full of snails, you're like, gee, why is that rock not moving? All the rest are. So I think it's kind of defining your anomaly and then doing experiment and gathering evidence against that and trying to really be honest about the, the experimental process and the design process so so with the experiment that you experiments that you have done in mind is where where do you sit on 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 this fence is is the origin of life something that's continuous and and happening today or is it something that really depended on those initial conditions that were in in place you know 3.5 billion years ago 4.5 billion years ago is, is it some special event that that or, or that's rare or is it something that is um you know rather commonplace i mean i just don't have so if i'm going to be a lawyer <laughs> and i don't like being a lawyer but being a lawyer is fun for a bit now and then mm. um if i was being a lawyer i would say i do not have any evidence that really says the origin of life was special but i don't have any evidence saying it wasn't um but as a naturalist um, I can see chemistry everywhere and biology everywhere, and I can see physics in operation. What I would like to do is assume that there doesn't seem to be anything mystical. I don't find, when I dissect a living thing, 
um, it's contained, contained of atoms. If I was to take, I don't know, let's say a bacteria rather than an ant or a mouse or something, and put it through an atom grind and grind up all the molecules into atoms, and then I got a bunch of dead atoms and put them together, they would be indistinguishable. So the fact I can get a life form and break it into constituent building blocks, which I can find in a dead um, labor in a in laboratory or create under laboratory conditions where they wouldn't be alive, I would say, well, that's really interesting because the atoms coming from the dead, the, the living thing, and the atoms from the dead thing, I've now made indistinguishable. What is different about the two things before I put them into the molecular grinder into their atoms? So I think the origin of life is probably, asking about the origin of life is perhaps the wrong question because it's very historical. It's worth asking in one framework, but I want to know what does happen Mm -hmm. rather than ask what did happen. And so if you were going to say, well, come on, just give me a, what, what do you think? And say, well, I think the origin of life is a continuum event. It's happening everywhere. I don't think there's anything special about it. I think there might have been something interesting at the, the way that the, earth, the, the stage that Earth has gone through that may have confined the origin of life on Earth to certain stages. And that's why we don't see it going on now. And also because we're the dominant technology on Earth, or the dominant mm -hmm. self-sustaining technology on Earth. Um, that we probably don't, we're not able to recreate it easily or observe it in the environment because we just don't know what happened. And mm -hmm. I think that where I come at is I think that the origin of life or, the, or making a life form from scratch is solvable. It doesn't need billions of years, um, but, but there is some fundamental conceptual problems about physics and chemistry and then um, by consequence biology that we need to solve. So for me, this is like all my Christmases have come at once. It's like the most exciting and interesting research topic you can imagine. But sadly, to go with it, it seems to be very full of a lot of opinion and dogma and precious evidence. And I'm a scientist. I don't deal with opinion unless you can turn an opinion into an experiment or a so, theory so that I can test experimentally. So if, if this is a process that is ongoing, is, is your idea that, so it sounds like your idea is that the current species, the current technology uh, in yours, are out competing, or, or is it that we don't recognize the process happening because we just, we wouldn't know what the beginnings of the process look like? Both. They're so far, they're f so far removed from, from cells. I would say both. I would say that, you know, the, the, the process that gives rise to life, or eventually life, is everywhere, um, but it's very primitive. And I think when it starts to make its own way to a evolutionary dynamic of some description, a technology, that basically life on Earth is just it's established in a particular state. And um, the, the solution we have on, one, on Earth is one of several solutions. And I think it might be quite hard for many solutions to coexist because there's a great deal of of a benefit you get from sharing the ribosome, sharing DNA, sharing that technology, um, sharing because what you do is you share evolutionary experience on Earth. If the sole purpose of life is just to exist, then it makes sense that you share a common framework because you can learn from everyone's mistakes and successes. Mm -hmm. So the things that die and failed are no longer in the lineage. The things that survive are in the lineage. And because you're built on the same kind of technology, you benefit from that directly. Mm -hmm. And so this would be sort of an explanation for why it seems like everything on Earth derived from a common ancestor, I suppose. Yeah, and I mean, I think probably 
It was a gradual process. I think there, there, are, there were many origins of life on Earth going on at the same time. There are many competing, let's say, technologies or, or instantiations of biology, of evolution going on. And there, and there was a, the, the things that won, obviously, were the ones that could persist in the environment at the time it was emerging. And here's where I'm kind of fascinated about with this kind of idea of, of, um, of doing just enough to survive to get to the next step. Because human technology, in a way, might be just seen another extension of that. that we've done just enough to get access to energy from fossil fuels. And hopefully we need to do just enough to prevent catastrophic climate change to continue on uh, as a species and maybe, you know, rewild the earth or whatever we need to do mm -hmm. if, we, if we think that for you know the preservation of life on earth and biology um, we need to do some other things but i think that that's um so i think that maybe some aspects of what we see in biology now are uh, have some relationship back to what earth was like and that's why the origin of life idea the historical experiment does have merit but i believe it's mostly an illusion hmm. I suppose it's it's not such a silly question to ask because you can imagine a situation where we wipe ourselves out or we replace ourselves with some artificial intelligence that many millions of years in the future looks back to their own origin <laughs> and uh, we'll have trouble, you know, finding a, a biological origin to an abiological life. But, exactly. um, but, um, so, well, okay, in, in terms of what we do know then, what is, what is the earliest evidence we have, uh, what is the most primitive life that we have evidence for? And I mean, I'm, I, I, I'm happy to show my, I'm not a very good um, archaeologist or bio, um, uh, there is, but there are lots of different archaea and cyanobacteria and some very early um, indications of very primitive bacterial or things that in that that come on that that tree of life. I guess you have the archaea and the bacteria and all of this. So there are there seems to be a evidence of systems that were that had a you know cells if you like the first cellular objects going back. I I think if Earth is about I can't remember is it over it's either three point eight or four point two billion years old, round about that time. And within a, within a few hundred million years of uh, forming, around about the time of the, 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 the late heavy bombardment, there was evidence that life sprung up pretty quickly with that or after that. So life, some people thought that life took a billion years to get going, but that number has been constantly pushed further and further back. So I think that, you know, life really got going super quick within you know, millions of years, not hundreds of millions of years, maybe even hundreds of thousands of years. And all that happened was because there was such a maelstrom of activity that every now and then, you know, a big boulder would come in and sterilize the planet and go, oh, we need to start again. You know, it's a bit like when you're writing a document and you keep losing it. Like, and, you know, you remember, the, you remember the story slightly so that the story changes. And I guess that, 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 that happened a lot. And I think that there's a... Uh, you know, uh, maybe a way of actually kind of digging into that. I guess uh, what I was trying to get at is, you know, is, is the evidence based on, for example, um, chemical changes in the atmosphere, or do we actually have, you know, a fossil where you can go and see <laughs> these mi microscopic dots that we presume are uh, <coughs> the result of bacterium? 
So there's lots of arguments about these nanofossils, but the problem with them is we don't know if they were formed by, by because we don't know what life is or what the signatures of life really look like. You know, we don't even know what life is today. We know what life isn't. And it's quite difficult, you know, if you ask a biologist to define life, they'll be right a bit confused to say, oh, it's, you know, things that have a ribosome and this, that and the other. But, but is that really life? Is that, that's just, an, you know, it's like, like trying to say a computer and saying, like, oh, a computer is a, it's got a, you know, let's go back to the, one of the Apple Macs. It's got this and it's got an Apple on it and a rainbow and, you know, this, well, that's not a computer, that's a Macintosh. <laughs> or you know so um so but but there are there is microscopic evidence or there are artifacts that people found that that date back to that length of time uh, in the past and that seem to have properties consistent with them being extinct life forms and um you know and there's lots of argument about um whether they are or not i would love to find examples where we could get the earliest dna you know, I don't know how, what's the oldest piece of DNA that we know. Um, and I'd also like to actually find life that basically, you know, is there life on Earth that has been cut off from the rest of the world for the last three and a half, 3.7, you know, whatever billion years. And uh, we could see how that would evolve because if that environment hasn't changed very much. It might be that life form might be very similar to the life form that came out of the primordial soup. I guess one location you might find that sort of information is if there's been a meteorite impact that spewed, uh, you know, life forms out into space, and we find it on Mars or some other planet or the Moon or somewhere um, down the track. But on Earth, I suppose we've looked. I guess deep in the ocean is is. is I one think un in and under the under the the ice sheet in Antarctica, I think there's so much to be found there, and I think there's a lot to be found at the bottom of the ocean and underground. Um, but I, but the problem is that life gets everywhere, right? Life is everywhere on Earth, um, and it's pretty good at adapting and re reinventing itself. So um, I wouldn't be surprised if we find alternative life forms on Earth, um, but I would they would have to be in, under very special circumstances, trapped from the rest of the planet, because not to be assimilated into the evolutionary dynamic. Because why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you share information? and learn from other, that's what evolution's brilliant at. Really, you know, at the, at the top level, all life is, is the ability for matter to um, make itself more, it improves its, its properties of existence. Um, and it's not just being stationary like a rock, so it's got more than existence, but there is, you know, um, it's able to kind of maximize the heat death of the universe. <laughs> basically yeah. the living universes will die faster because they're going to create more entropy well that was the recent paper the physics paper from a couple of years back right that dna is the most efficient uh user of uh, solar energy or something like this yeah but uh, uh, it, that was nonsense i mean the, the, the okay. papers like that let's just say they're just it's the problem is that i mean okay I don't know the paper in question in detail. When people make statements like that, it's very difficult because you can't do the counterfactuals, right? Yeah. And, but you can just make the observation and say, hey, compared to a lot of other things, DNA is really good at this. But with respect to what? The most efficient solar harvester out there is a, is a silicon solar panel. Mm. So you can get 30% of triple, you know, junction silicon solar, so 30% efficiency. But but they're not self-replicating. I guess. I guess the other uh, physics argument is, as you're saying, that it, 
organisms rapidly increase entropy, the heat death argument. But yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, what organisms do is they are able to do work with the sun's energy, right? What we've done is we've had it and billions of years of the sun giving us this free energy and we have used it, by golly, we have used it and it's great. I mean, it's like, um, and I think that's, uh, that's the planet's had a lot of fun, you know? So in terms of actually, you know, fabricating uh, life from scratch, the obvious place to start looking is at a cell but cells are really complicated I, I i was doing a little bit of research or i was looking into my old uh, high school level biology and cells are incredibly complicated with all different structure we, we've never recreated anything similar i mean before your research no one has ever created anything close to a cell right oh lots of people have tried to make cells so what i mean i think i've done uh, well let's go ask that question cells are incredibly complicated now but were cells complicated at the beginning because cells are a minimum self aren't they do you do molecules evolve no do cells evolve kind of but cells evolve in populations i like to say to people when i'm making jokes at parties it's like you evolve together you die alone <laughs> and what i mean by that is like kind of brutal but what i mean is that we evolve in a population so, but to evolve in a population, we have to have a self and inside and outside. And cells are really good ways of doing that. So the, the very first cells might be the same stuff, everything, right? Just salad dressing or literally oil in water or whatever. And then, then after they accumulate stuff from the environment, one group becomes better than the other group at surviving. And then, and then machines are invented. Maybe machines are distributed between the cells and they get compacted and they get evolved and selected upon. And I think that that's a, the fact that cells are now really sophisticated, you should view like a kind of a, a technological development that you basically, each cell has now got its own power source. Each cell has now got its own um, kind of way of uh, moving in the environment and, you know, and exchanging uh, um, information with the environment. But it didn't need to always be that way. You could have had a network of objects that were dead individually, but that network was able to self-sustain. Where maybe you might have one cell in the object dedicated to doing one reaction, and another cell dedicated to recording some information, and another cell dedicated to something else. And because their logistics were so good, and they hadn't undergone Brexit, that they were able to kind of be a, you know, a cohesive entity. But the problem when you have a network of objects, they're fragile, they're not robust. And so any, so if that was broken apart, the, the living uh, nature of the network would be killed or stopped. So basically what you want to be able to do is recreate that again when the, net, the cells got together and over time, you'd have this get together as a network, be more functional, get, get broken apart, not be functional. And then to basically, you know, if you lived in some parts of the US where there's tornadoes all the time, you have a power, you have a generator in your basement, right? Because the power is always going down. And so you have to become a bit more independent. So I think that the first cells were incredibly simple. And what we've been doing in my lab is not trying to create a biological cell, but say, hey, let's have a lump of stuff and let's put it through an evolutionary selection engine. And let's, mm -hmm. let's see what happens. And let's put it through cycles of evolution and watch it become more sophisticated and independent. So I want to jump in, uh, into that uh, in a second, but I, I just had uh, one or two questions uh, before we go to specifically to, I, I guess you're working with salts and, and all sorts of uh, chemistry, but the, the um, so the, have we, 
have researchers taken very simple cells then and removed pieces to, to try to build the most simple cell they can? How far can we go there? So there's a whole area of science called synthetic biology where people have been, uh, who understand molecular biology very well, are able to build um, different types of um, systems um, that are extremely good at you know, translating DNA and building proteins and so on. But the problem is all these systems are actually dead. They don't replicate without some help. So, the, so people have made quite advanced synthetic cells that can do some function, uh, express some protein. But actually, when it comes down to it, they are not able to leave home. They are the proverbial teenager. Mm-hmm. I see. But so in terms of the components that make up a, a cell, in the lab, we're able to synthesize amino acids, lipids, like every bit of the chemi- chemistry we can do in the lab, right? Yeah, and, and I mean, you could, you could make every, I mean, it, so look, you, it's very easy to, well, very easy. It is possible in principle. There we go. <laughs> it's, there's always, when people say that too, you have to put on the alarm, it's possible in principle, okay. <laughs> it's possible in principle to synthesize every molecule that's in a cell you know, from, from the cell wall all the way up. Why would you? I mean, some of them are very simple. You can get them from the environment. But when you put them all together, they don't boot up. Mm-hmm. What Venter has made a life form, but when he did it, he cheated slightly in that he synthesized the DNA and he put the DNA into an existing minimal cell system and showed that it would minimally turn over. But that's not that's the same still... thing as synthesizing everything, putting it together. So there's still this spark of life. So the, the, the thing that Venter used can be traced back to Luca all the way back, right? He didn't actually synthesize itself from scratch. So that means there's some hidden information in the living cell that we know that is responsible for how it works and we just don't know. And that for me is one of the most exciting mysteries of molecular biology that molecular biologists won't own up to. The molecular biologists do not know how a cell turns over. They have theories, but if they knew, they'd be able to build one from scratch and put, it all, put all the parts in and it will work. It doesn't work. I'm actually not familiar with this uh, result from Venter. So he, uh, or she, uh, took, took um, some, made a carbon copy of DNA using... Yeah, so what Craig Venter did, so it's a he, he's a, a very uh, great entrepreneurial pioneer and a great molecular biologist, not a scientist, an entrepreneur, but but very good technology. Um, I feel like he's like, could be a great scientist, but chose to, he, he was in competition with the Human Genome Project, right? He was a kind of the, the company uh, was trying to get there before. So he, what he did is he took a, a simple parasite um, and he copied all the DNA in that parasite and uh, or, or sequenced it all. And then he went to a gene synthesis system and he made all the genes robotically. Okay, and then added them all together robotically, and then put the that and then took a cell, removed the natural DNA, and put in the unnatural DNA to see if it worked, and it did. That's that's still amazing. I mean, that's oh yeah, absolutely amazing. But of course, if I take a hard disk out of a computer and put it into another one, of course it's going to boot up. But the thing is, well, technologically. But if I take the, but what I've got now is if I take an existing native computer and copy all the bits and take my hard disk and put it in, it doesn't work. 
That means we don't know what's going on with the metabolism, the, the lipids, the molecular structures, the way the translation occurs. There's some missing ingredients in the cell we haven't yet um, got to the bottom of because the dogma of biology, the central dogma, is not, the, is, is not all the story. We know where the information is stored that evolution preys on mostly, but we don't know where it's all stored. There is hidden instructions in the cell and that's kind of a heretical statement, right? But it must be true. Because if it wasn't true, we would be able to take the information that we have about the cell and build it up. And some people might say, oh, we've been able to do that, we just haven't done it very well. And I'm like, well, yeah, maybe. But that's one interpretation. But what seems to right now is there is an information missing from our from theory missing, some principle missing or or so not missing but we just don't understand and therefore we're not able to implement it artificially and therefore make a competent living cell but is is it the case that we're missing some information or that just technically it's really 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 difficult to build a cell i mean well uh, yeah i mean you could say that i just i mean again if i was being a lawyer i'd say i'd have to agree it might just be very difficult but people have tried for a very long time and they don't seem to be getting very close I mean, the cells don't replicate. I see. So, yeah. But, but so in terms of uh, experiments, uh, starting from uh, Miller Yuri all the way out to today, what what do you bring to the table? What 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 have your experiments done that that's new? What's the what's the new hypothesis? What's the? Um, so, um, sorry, one second. So what's the hypothesis? What are we bringing that's new to the table? Well, I think what we're doing, we're bringing is a, a is a a number of um, um, key ideas. The first one is that that we should be we are aiming to try and understand how life could start in the lab now if we would start again. So we're basically saying, hey, let's treat this as a testable problem, not a historical problem. Um, and in terms of let's not try and work out what happened way back when and recreate that in the lab and hope for life to come out. Let's instead try and say, well, what is it? What does life look like now? Why is life look interesting? What can we do to try and get something evolving? So that's the first point. The second point is to kind of view the problem of, of making a life form as not as something that needs literally billions of years of evolution that we could do quickly. And the other thing is this recognition that evolution is a force, if you like, or this is a hypothesis that I want to prove. I have some evidence that the Darwinian evolution, not just time evolution, and that is selection of stuff in the environment at the expense of other stuff. So limited resource and there's selection that goes on and something wins or something loses, so live and die, um, occurs even without biology. So I'll say that again. The Darwinian evolution proceeds in reality even without biology. And all that you see, all biology is, is an amplifier. It's just biology is able to evolve much faster than other materials. So that's, I think, our key thesis, that we want to see how does normal stuff evolve, what makes it evolve, what turns something to become evolutionary, um, and then try and, and try and replicate, try and 
replicate that process in the laboratory and watch the process of evolution generating information in in real time evolutionary time mm -hmm. so but so what are the models that you're looking at then in, in terms of theoretical models or physical models uh, uh, well both uh, i'm actually interested in how you actually do the experiment but uh, so what what are the objects you're dealing with? What what are the you know what holds the DNA or the what, yeah yeah what's Joel, the well we're going all the way back so we're not making any assumptions about DNA or proteins. I'm so, I think the DNA and proteins and the stuff we have in the cell right now is simply too complex too complex to have merged from scratch. And so mm. if we, we what we need to see the first hypothesis is that life that we have now isn't the first life. There's other life that kind of came before it. So um, um, our starting point um, is that um, we're doing this in chemistry, okay, because um, it's easy to manipulate atoms and molecules in the lab. And what we're trying to do is to, sh is to say, how can we do chemical reactions uh, in an environment and how does that environment, that such that the environment is able to act on the chemical reactions and cause them to start to evolve. Mm -hmm. So... Can the environment act on some chemistry that's going on? And let's maybe we put, let's just say we're going to do it in the test tube. So test tube evolution. And say, right, how does the chemistry get constrained by the test tube? Maybe in the test tube we put some rocks. Maybe we put some fire. Maybe we put some lightning. Maybe we shake it. Maybe we do something specific to it. Or an electric field near a black hole, whatever you want. And then we do the chemistry and then we then measure what's going on. And that's what we're starting to do is to build a series of what I call evolutionary difference engines, where the, and what does that mean? It means, well, evolution is about change and adaptation and selection. Um, um, and the, what we need is basically two different rates of change, where the chemistry in the test tube changes faster than the chemistry on the outside, so the chemistry in the test tube can survive in the environment, um, come what may. And, what it, and survive means persist for a, a certain uh, length of time. I see. So, uh, if I so I might not understand correctly. So, you you have some chemistry that's occurring in in a test tube, and you're looking into what you mean by evolution is. So, I have some chemical reaction that then makes some other chemical reaction more likely to happen, and then I get some sequence of chemical reactions that occur. Is the, so? Is that what what's happening? No, I can, I can give you a much more concrete example. It's really hard what we're talking about here because. We're talking about something that's pre-paradigmatic. So what I mean by that, um, a very dramatic statement. In a lot of sciences, when people are struggling to understand what you know something is, there's lots of competing theories and feelings and intuitions. And those intuitions get encoded in some language that's imprecise because the theory's not there yet. So what is so I what I did is I went back to the basics and said, what is the difference between the chemistry of biology and the chemistry that's not in biology? And the simple answer is that chemistry in biology has a history. The chemical reactions um, are controlled by what happened in the past, by selection. So all that biology is is chemistry of history. So I'm like, aha. At the beginning, there is no way of storing the information. The history is just really kind of, you know, an unwashed plate. It's like, you know, you could basically, you know, let's say you take a frying pan and you cook something and, you know, at the end you clean the frying pan and it's clean and go again. But let's just say you do, you make an omelette in your frying pan and it's nice and clean and in the end you leave the residue. And then you make, I don't know, a waffle or you make something else. And each time you make something else, it will be affected. Like food poisoning. It will be affected by the thing. Well, let's not, let's, it'll be, it, the chemistry will be affected by what's in the pan before. 
And it doesn't have to be to a huge event. You can have an, an amplification through some catalysis. And so I think what is interesting is that the history is recorded in the system, not very efficiently, but efficiently enough for the past to affect the future. So as soon as we have a system where the past can affect the future, you invent time. You invent biological time. And that's the problem, right, that the physicists coming to terms with. Physicists are completely screwed up with their notion of time and evolution in the universe. So they're basically misleading all the chemists. The chemists don't have the mathematical um, kind of uh, uh, now to really untangle it, and the biologists just don't care. Because the biologists like, we, would... have, we have it working. We don't care. Why do we want to know where we, where we came from? I'm quite happy making proteins and you know curing disease and making vaccines that hopefully will get rid of COVID-19 and stuff like that. So there is this really interesting disconnect in the... Because the physicists really liked to be up at the beginning of answering these creation stories. Um, so in, in the, in the uh, experiments that you actually do, how will you know that you've done it uh, then? What, what's, the, what's the smoking gun of uh, what will win you the prize or the, what will send you to Stockholm? Uh, I think so. Um, I, I mean, <laughs> well, let's let other people worry about prizes. Um, I would like, obviously, to uh, do something that everyone would recognize as terribly important and exciting. I think that comes, you know, but yeah, okay, let, but let's just say in everyone's eyes, it's a, a Nobel Prize is a good indicator of success. But I would not accept a Nobel, well, I should say here, you should not get, accept a Nobel Prize for anything less than kind of making a life or not convincing a narrative, right? Lots of narratives competing for prizes out there. And I'm, I don't care about narrative, I want to know what happened. Not what you're, what not. I don't want to know what story you want to tell me. So what I think that needs is literally, um, I need to be able to turn sand into cells. So I need to go inorganic stuff in my machine, and I need to audit what happens. Because when I, you know, when I make the machine, everyone's going to say, "But you're cheating," you know. You're, you're, and I'm like, I've always wanted to be a god. I get to be a god. <laughs> I'm making my own life form. That's the only way. I'm going to get people worshiping me. I mean, I'm joking, right? Uh, and so, but, what, but I'm, I'm joking about the God complex. But what I'm not joking about is the problem that if we manage to create a life form in the laboratory using a machine that we build, everyone's going to say, oh, well, maybe well done, but you made the machine, or you made the machine. Where did you come from? That's really... Hmm. So what we've got to be very careful to do is to basically um, explore chemical space and inorganic chemical space to see how life got started and that memory got created and show the constraints for that in the, can occur on Mars, on Venus, on Earth, wherever, and that the absolute inputs we needed, all that we did in the lab probably was to accelerate that process because we didn't have a billion years. Okay. And that, I think it's okay to go in baby steps and start with having a lab. I mean, I think it's okay if you're present. Sure. For the but, first. <laughs> but 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 Craig then Craig Venter will say, look, I've already made a new life form. Mm-hmm. Sure. I and mean he, and he did. He took the DIY. Well he didn't he didn't entirely do it. He, he did something very close. He already made the world's first synthetic life form. I, I, I see. So 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 you, you want you want something that's actually plausible. But so Okay, so so what have you done in the lab? So the, the, in terms of the actual experiment, when when you get down to it, you put the white jacket, the coat on, and and, and what 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 have you done? 
So we've done, um, so what I had to do to create this is I needed it to, to solve this problem. Um, I needed to kind of take the approach that CERN or actually particle physicists took to looking for the Higgs boson and, and getting all the uh, particles sorted out. The problem with we have the origin of life is nobody knows when we've done it. What is the origin of life, right? You know, you either made a, you know, you either make a, a, um, a, a fully functioning cell or you've done nothing or you've got some, you made a bit of RNA or you've done nothing, you know, and even if you've made an RNA, you might have cheated. So what I was saying is that um, I needed to develop a new kind of theory. So which is, that, so the, the basic theory is that matter evolves and we, if matter evolves, we should be able to tell evolved matter from unevolved matter with a simple test. So you have theory, test, test you can turn into experiment or measurement, like the Higgs boson, you needed the Atlas detector to detect, detect the particles colliding and, and looking for the anomaly at the right energy range. So you have theory, you have metric, you then have an experiment, um, and you have a model. So what you do is you have your theory, and that theory says, I'm going to make a model. That roughly I'm going to look for this type of behavior, this type of change of complexity, or this amount of information processing. So we've made that theory. We have a theory that tells the difference, that can tell the difference between molecules that are made by a living system or molecules that are made in a random environment. Dust. Great. So now we then, that theory is about related to life. We can put that into a simulator and work out how much we need to do. So we've now literally made uh, a series of robots, if you like, or not if you like, they are robots. They are chemical robots that move, ran, put random mixtures of inorganic materials into a test tube shake it for a bit, do a reaction, heat it up, then cool it down, remove 99% of it, keep 1%, that's the seed, that's the memory, what happened before, do exactly the same reaction again, then stop, throw away 99%, well it's actually 90%, we keep 10%, but 1% sounds more grand, in the end it should be 1%, right? So you keep a seed, so each time you do an experiment, you do an experiment in a fresh flask, beautiful, works, lovely. You then measure what happens. You look at the complexity or the information in the molecules. Should be not very much. You then throw away most of the chemistry, but you keep a little bit of a memory of what happened. You do it again. You keep going in a cycle, in a cycle, in a cycle. And what we're looking for is the ability for the system to start processing information. And of course, we have all these control reactions going on. We're comparing. So we're literally... People talk about monkeys on, on, on typewriters writing Shakespeare or something. We're trying to build the typewriter and the monkey and the Shakespeare at the same time. Because when people talk about the, the probability, when creationists say life is impossible because you need a monkey on a typewriter, they're misunderstanding the typewriter and the monkey and the Shakespeare. It was really simple at the beginning. It took small steps. So it was like, just basically, if you've got only got three letters, there's only, it's easy to produce the in the end, right? It's like, you know, the, 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 and off you go. And then when you've got the, then a the opens up another door where you can maybe like, you know, the big, and then you might get to brown, and you know, fox or whatever, you know. And, and, and so that's what we're doing in the lab right now. So we've built the system, we have the model, we have the theory, and we have the metric. And just like the physicists went and looked for the Higgs, we are now going looking for the system that gives a jump in com evolved complexity from nothing. And we're using a technique called mass spectrometry to get there. So the complexity is um, the, the length of some 
polymer or, or, or what is the uh, in the in terms of the chemistry what what is the complexity that you're looking for so what so we're not thinking about it may be that polymers do this but what we're looking for and this is why it's really hard and most people disagree with me but they are, are all wrong this is the one thing in my life I'm right on and that's because I believe in the second law and I, be, I don't believe in magic so what I mean is so basically if you take my um, um, so um, this watch it's got a lot of parts okay um, you know it's yeah. a titanium watch if I type on the screen you know it's a Garmin actually with a solar panel in it lots of parts so um, this watch um, couldn't have assembled itself it was designed by someone it was made it has enough bits in it if I give you a lump of dirt the same mass as the watch you would instantly tell the difference because you would see that the matter in the watch had to be constrained in a non-natural way so what we have done is we've made a way of measuring that and what we have found is that molecules um, can't there are some molecules that can't appear randomly right so when you are in the world right when a molecule gets into a certain size um, and they have a certain fingerprint associated with them there is no way you can generate that molecule so you don't even have to look for polymers just look for a molecule for a chemist it's very easy to look for molecule it's the same way when you're looking for the Higgs the easiest thing for the physicist to do is to collide protons together and look for the Higgs boson to be created or evidence of that in the in the in the trails um, we could look for you know DNA starting to be made from scratch or the equivalent but what we want to say is like when we can find molecules that are so complex they couldn't be formed unless there was a process of history, information gathering, constraining, um, that's what we need to be able to do. And fortunately, we developed a technique to go and look for aliens, actually, with, on, in the solar system, or let's call it astrobiology, right? Alien sounds cool. It's like, find aliens, but it literally is that. And the way we would find the aliens is in the molecular signatures. Um, I'm having a lot of arguments with chemists because chemists think that complex molecules could randomly form. But it's like expecting one of these watches to form in dirt randomly. It can't happen. It won't happen. I mean, look, it's even lighting up at the back because it's going to measure my blood oxygen level and my heart rate. So, so I think that's the key is the fact that we are looking for assembled motifs. Lego is equivalent to Lego blocks. And because the Lego block, because the Lego blocks are compressed together in 3D, it's much more interesting looking for a polymer. Mm -hmm. You know. It, but so, what what's the control then in in these experiments? Is is you do the thing without recursion? So you just have to you just do the experiment, and you could do two things. You could do the experiment for a very long time without re the recycling, just leave it going forever, and mm -hmm. or you can just um, have a background there. And then you just do, in mass spec, you look for the increase in complexity. Does the molecular weight and the complexity of the molecules go up in my control versus recursion? And, it, you know, and look at the differences and, under, and what's, uh, what processes are going on in the recursive system versus the, the, st the, the standalone system. Mm -hmm. And how, how do you choose the seed? Is, is, is there sort of an, it sounds like there are a lot of choices. Where, yeah, where do you begin? Choose the seeds. The seed, you just do it. I just randomly choose it. Whatever you want. Moon rock. Rock from outside. Uh, you know, I think what you have to, what, what I think is like saying, how do you choose the point at which you're going to fall to earth? Right? In a gravity world to prove the existence of gravity. Gravity is everywhere. What I think, what I'm really excited about, what might actually, you know, might confuse, annoy, or just 
um, and get your, your, your viewers, listeners really excited. I think that all matter leads to life. All so, so you would expect to find if we go looking on Europa or Mars or somewhere, then then you would expect to see life even in those extreme environments. Well, I'll, I'll let me put it. Let me let me put some limits on it. Um, I would say potentially yes, but all matter if you've got some energy and you've got and you can make and break bonds. If you have the so yeah, if you have the bullet, the ability to store memories in chemicals a bit like on a photographic plate or by making or breaking bonds, then you will in the end get life. That's my conjecture. So you can't go and look on Mercury. It's too close to the sun. All molecules will be vaporized. You probably might not want to look on Europa because it might be a bit too cold, but there is evidence of water and there's evidence of warmth. So let's not be too, you know, but on Venus. Now, Venus isn't alive with phosphine. That was a, a, a very strange declaration. Um, but Venus might have life on it might have very interesting life on it. It's hot, there's stuff going on. So I think that what we need to do is be very careful about what limits we put. Right now we say we must look for habit habitable world. So habitable world is one reminds us like Earth that you can have enough, a larger, so what is a habitable zone? You need to have enough um, energy for liquid water and perhaps you need to have the right gravitational force, right, to keep an atmosphere and all that stuff, right? Um, I mean, it's not just gravitational force, you know, we need a magnetosphere and things like that. I mean, that's why Mars presumably lost its atmosphere because it didn't have tectonic activity. There was no magnetosphere and, and just everything got scraped into space, I guess. Um, uh, but I think it's really simple. So I, I think that I, I just want to try and create a new life form in the lab. And if I do that, I can then start to basically tell NASA and anyone who wants to look for life in the solar system first and then elsewhere, how um, simple it is to look for life. Because look, looking at the problem we're doing right now is we're being far too prescriptive. It's like you saying, okay, you're wearing a very nice looking t-shirt there with these bicycles on it. You might say, only, only conscious beings wear these t-shirts. So then you could go around, I'm sure there's other people with that t-shirt. I don't know if it's bespoke, but if you go out, it's like looking at other t-shirt, other people wearing their t-shirts. Oh yeah, I found that t-shirt, definitely another conscious human being. So what NASA did for a while uh, is, is say, oh, we're going to look for amino acids, or we're going to look for DNA, or we're going to look for RNA, or we're going to look for this. And I think that, that looking, but, amino, but these things can occur outside their biology. It is possible to make amino acids randomly. It is possible to make a DNA new base pair randomly. So if you find those, that's not the same thing as saying you found life. You need more. You need more complexity, more information, more evidence of an evolutionary history. But would you expect to find these things in large quantities randomly? Yeah, yeah. So that's the point. So that's a very so. Um, so I think Shane, that's a really important point that I often forget to say because people get there confused and say you want to find you know a really complex molecule. And I give my watch an example, right? And I guess physicists get confused with probability. The physicists would say there is a finite probability this could not assemble itself. I could show you with a little bit of mathematics that's impossible. Right, it's, it's impossible. But I think having that argument is actually null, is mute. That's not the thing. Uh, um, what you want to say is like, look, if I was to, if my, let's just say that um, ra a random one is allowed, because that's okay, let's just do that. Let's just, meet the, let's just meet the statisticians at their game. Say, if I find one of these, you're not that convinced. But if I find 10, 100, 1,000, and they're all functioning digital watches, you'll be like, oh, I can sell these. Um, someone made them. 
So that for the complex molecule argument, you need to be able to not just detect one, but many, many thousands. Fortunately, the experiment I'm using in the lab, mass spectrometry, doesn't just detect single molecules. You need tens of thousands of molecules, which is still not very many, if you can, if you, in the scheme of your sample, well, there's countless trillions and trillions and trillions. Remember, 18 centimeters cubed of water has one mole of water. Okay, that's 6.022 times 10 to the 23 molecules. So that's a lot of molecules. So that, and if you, so that's kind of, that's kind of cool. So you only need, I would say, 10,000 identical copies to, in the mass spec, maybe, maybe a few hundred if you've got a really good machine or something. I'm, I, I need to go and do that calculation and ask an engineer to help me. But literally, the, it's, it can't be random, it has to be an abundance. So what, what is the outcome being of your experiment then? Are you finding these abundances? What, what, what's, what has been done? So we're doing these experiments. So first of all, we've, we needed to validate our um, experiments in a life detection system, which we've just done. So we've shown that dead things produce low complexity things and that living things produce high complexity things. And we've taken very complicated, people that think are complicated, like a classic meteorite samples, like the Murchison meteorite. It's a very famous meteorite that landed, a very big meteorite. And, everyone, and they found literally hundreds of thousands, billions of, of, if not trillions of organic molecules on the meteorite. And they were like, whoa, how, we, how, this, this is, how do we know this has not got enough complexity to evidence life and the universe? And there, there is a complex mess but that's not the same thing as having complex um, artifacts, which there are not, and we detected it. So we've basically calibrated our detection system. So we've done that. We found the anomaly on Earth, which is life, because we would, you know, you can look around at samples and go, dead, 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 dead. Well, what's that? Oh, that's the Earth. Good. And then what we've done is we've built the machine in the lab, and we're starting to um, uh, uh, kind of earnestly go through our controls and do the experiments. And we are seeing things, right? I haven't got a big smoking gun to say, oh, we've found a, a life form. But in some experiments, we've shown evidence that you can generate this complexity via replication, molecular replication. And in other experiments, we've shown um, that, that you start to get anomalies. You start to get a growth in complexity that you would not expect to get unless there was an information system in there. And um, because we're building that theory and trying to show that um, all the evolution is is a chemical is a is a history if you like that you can use to inform your future decisions so living systems are basically different from dead systems because they can do a number of things the first thing is that they um, can do something different in the future than they did in the past really important might sound obvious but the rock in your garden or you find can't do anything different in the future than did the past. it's just static so living things make decisions okay and those decisions are controlled by the environment the interaction of the environment with the object and the object of the environment and because the object has a memory of what happened before if they see something changing in the environment say the temperature is going up the object might go oh temperature's going up i've got a mechanism to basically preserve myself to stop me from getting you know destroyed i will now spend resource building my defenses or things are getting cold, if you see what I mean. So basically the only thing that life is, the meaning of life is, re, is, is basically the minimal kind of 
response to changing the environment where you have a memory of how that environment has changed before. And that's pretty much it. You know, life isn't that interesting from that point of view. It generates all the interestingness as it goes through evolution. So we're seeing hints of that in all the experiments right now, but we've got to validate it, get it peer reviewed. Um, I've had a whole bunch of peer reviewed papers which have proved the principle of environmental selection. Published that a few years ago, but we did those experiments by hand. And we had a fairly hard time convincing people that, you know, um, this was the seed, right, of doing stuff. We've also got a bunch of experiments that show that inorganic molecules that aren't anywhere near as complex as DNA can self-replicate and make more complex entities that are able to replicate. So we've, they're made of what's called a catalytic set, an autocatalytic set. That's really interesting because that gives a way of getting something of the order of complexity of DNA um, and RNA without the need for evolution, just getting from the physics of chemistry. And the other thing that we're seeing in our, in our kind of Large Hadron Collider, CERN-like uh, kind of um, uh, experiments, we're starting to see changes in complexity. And like I say, that's not peer-reviewed yet, um, but, and it's always worth saying. And so is that going to lead to life? I think so. Um, are people going to believe us? I doubt it. <laughs> but, you know, I think that let's see, we might be surprised. I mean, I think that it's a very simple phenomenon we're searching for. And, I'm, and I think it's obvious that reality does this. And I mean, I think the, 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 the creation of life is as obvious as the creation of a gravity well and a meteor falling to Earth because the gravity well drags it down. So we've just got to be really careful of doing the experiments and show the anomaly and then let mm -hmm. the world decide. If, if life is inevitable, uh... And perhaps it's inevitable in the form that we see it on Earth, since that's the one example we have. What, why, why would you go after different chemistry? I mean, if if life in the current form is inevitable, then 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 what makes it obvious to to start with the particular seeds that? I I mean I I take it from your experiments that you don't expect eventually to get to a cell. Um, so, so we are not necessarily doing different chemistry. We're not banning the chemistries present on Earth. We've got all the elements that life on Earth has in our experiments at different times. So that's carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, hydrogen, uh, phosphorus, sulfur, chlorine, um, and some metals. Um, but I think that that may be not the first life form that came. I think that there might be other ways of doing it. I just don't know. I don't know what is the, the minimal uh, unit or system that can competently evolve. And if there is just one, I think there might be zillions and they all have common traits, but as they then share information and share contingency, that their numbers go down and it's just a pyramid. And in the end, there's a winner at the top. And that, and that winner can get through the evolutionary glass ceiling. What is the glass I see. So you're just being a little bit agnostic. Yeah, as agnostic the, as possible. I see. That's, that distinguishes us from most other researchers who most of them now are pretending to be agnostic, but they're really just pushing a particular chemistry. I see. But so um, I was curious uh, on, this, on the topic of in, uh, holding information and DNA in particular, uh, so that just out of curiosity, so, so when, when you look at how information is stored on, on a computer, we have our bits zero and one. But in DNA, we have four bases, which seems like a bit of overkill. Um, especially since we could encode for like 60 or something, 64 
um, amino acids and we only use 20 or something like this in, in, in biological life. So, so, so is it, do you think, do you think earlier life or more primitive life uh, only used two bases or, or um, did the chemistry itself sort of single out these four bases? So how did we end up with this? Um, what do these four bases do for us? Was, it, was that inevitable? So I, I, I think that once we started to embark on the carbon, nitrogen, heterocycle stuff that we're looking at, I think the emergence of the four bases makes a lot of sense, but I'm not sure it's inevitable because I don't know what events happened. But there, are, there is a, a lot of molecular biologists, who, who, a lot of very good chemists who turn molecular biologists have looked at this, this quartet and then looked at the error correction associated with producing amino acids and coding things in, in, uh, in the machinery. And there seems to be some consensus that there is a good way where there is not only contingent, there's not only a kind of historical contingency there, some things had to happen in the past, which meant that, that you couldn't really make it simpler in the future. But also you got benefits from, the, from correcting errors and making sure that you could um, uh, have redundancy in the gene and the different mechanisms that would read it out. But I just don't know if any of those are really proven yet. I think the only way to do it is to basically um, ask yourself how many solutions are there. I would guess, and it would be a guess, that, that there's some numerical correlation. You know, four is good. Why is four good? Well, let's look at the square. Let's look at the, um, the way the, 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 the RNA transfers amino acids. Um, you know, into the ribosome, into the protein, that whole translational process. So there's something there. But I would also say that there's a lot of accidents that have gone along the way. And I think without, you know, um, questioning the assumptions made by the bioinformaticians and the, and the prebiotic chemists, it's very difficult to know for sure. Um, could life be made with, um, without DNA, right? Is DNA, the molecule, does it have to be a double helix to do these things? Does it have to be... You know, that's really hard to say. DNA is a remarkable molecule. It's suffice to say unique in a way that you have this digital polymer, the only example of a digital polymer on Earth other than proteins, right? And, you know, and, and, and RNA. Um, and this is, why is it a digital polymer? Well, every site in that RNA was put in in registry from, uh, you know, uh, um, in the process of, of uh, replication. That's pretty phenomenal. You have four monomers and then the four monomers go stick and you zip it up. And that, chemists are nowhere near that um, elegance, okay, in the laboratory. They can do it stepwise synthesis, but nowhere near that way. So I, I uh, of a kind of, you know, um, kind of redundant organization. So I, I'm not really able to tell you too much right now. I could guess I could go outside my expertise and say, oh, certainly it's this, and I'm sure you can find bioinformaticians that would agree with me and then some that would disagree with me. But I think, um, I don't know any limitations why you'd have to have four base pairs, and I don't know any limitations why you have to have DNA other than on Earth. Look at it, it's a helix, it unravels, uh, the process of assembling up to make the, the, the you know, the, the, uh, the strand ready again to go and then before it divides is just really brilliant. But how much of that is just a model that I have in my head that was put in my head by going all the way back to Francis and Crick? I, I guess the one thing I, I would guess, and again, I'm absolutely not- What's in the Crick? <laughs> Sorry, go on. 
No. Uh, so I'm absolutely not a biologist or, or a chemist. So, but my guess, if I had to make one, would be that um, you know, if you have four base pairs, then you can in, use three of those triplets to a, a code for some amino acid. But if you only had two, then you'd need a larger, you know, you need five or something um, uh, base pairs to encode for a given amino acid. And just it might just be that the geometry of the, the chemistry you're trying to uh, match to doesn't fit. Yeah, but, you know, but, that's, but, that, but the thing is, you're looking back at that detective story as a deterministic. If you probably were limited to do base pairs, why would you choose amino acids that link in that way? Why would you go on a 1D polymer? Why not go 2D? And then have different coordinates. Mm. I, you know, I mean, it's very easy to kind of find a solution to the problem. I think, and I, I do agree with you. I think it's really alluring. It is. It's nature's done something right. We're still here, and wouldn't it be mm. fascinating if, um, you know, if, if proof of uh, life was literally, uh, or proof of getting, you know, doing enough to get to to Stockholm is required, then really what you need to do is to independently evolve a totally new. Um, uh, information storage and translation system that is not DNA based and show that it works. That would be that would be that would be pretty awesome. Yeah, it's just that from a from an information perspective, it seems like two base pairs would be the simplest. Like, you know, jumping from no base pairs to four base pairs <laughs> seems more difficult than jumping from zero to two. Yeah, but and I think that again, you're, you're again, you're looking within the framework of what we already know. And I don't think that I think the problem we have suffered from life as observers is we're trying to recreate what we know now. And and like you say, about you know, it's like the artificial intelligence and well, what came before it. I think that um, it your argument is is interesting but it doesn't help me do the origins experiment because when i put in the four base pairs i've got four pieces of information to account for where did that come from and then where did it, where did, how did replication get invented and there's all, all these other bits so all i know is i there's a phenomenon i'm looking for and that's evolution i've got a metric for it okay i've got a, i've got a detection system for it and i have a machine to make and i'm going to go and look at how well can chemistry evolve without existing biology and that is mm -hmm. the question and how do we get what is the leap we need to take from minimal non-evolving chemistry to evolving chemistry to biology mm. so I, I know that you prefer to talk about what can be done today but i i, I was hoping also just to ask you sort of your your imagination for for the sequences of events that actually did occur if you if you were a betting or a guessing man you know did did life begin with rna did it you know if if you had to make this this guess um um i i i couldn't guess i mean i just the thing is uh, um i would say that life needs bonds that would be as much as I would be willing to say. Life needs bonds and molecules to interact in networks. And at some point, life used those bonds and molecules to make, and there was some concatenation going on, some catenation, some linkaging, some formation of chains. And, um, and that was the route to life. But no, I mean, you know, the RNA world is like a fanciful dream because of the RNA world... The reason why I'm not saying that RNA was needed because the information required to generate the RNA world is huge 
And then you're then stuck with where did the RNA world come from? And everyone says, oh, that just in, it's just in synthetic chemistry. Well, what I'm about to reveal in the next few weeks, and I can't really explain to you right now, um, um, is um, I can prove that's just not true. I can prove that basically the RNA world is the equivalent of waiting for a Tesla to assemble itself and, uh, and, and just form in your backyard. Okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's a dramatic example of it, but it's the same problem. I see. So, so you don't want to give any more uh, hints towards what that proof is? Yeah, so what I can, I can it's a little bit like this. Um, it, the, the, I, I'll give you a little bit of a hint. So um, I don't know if you like to play poker or bet, um, but if you, your grasp of statistics. But if I say to you, um, um, the RNA world requires the equivalent of me taking a coin and flicking and taking a coin that has access to heads and tails. Um, and if you flick a coin, right, and I only give you, say, 100 flicks, do you know what's the distribution going to be like of getting a num maximum number of heads or tails in a row is? No, not off the top of my head. I mean, if, you, if you think about it, it's probably going to be, if you think about it, you do, if you do the first one, it's a half, and the next one is a quarter, and it keeps going down and down and down and down and down. So you're going to get a lot, you might get a few where you might get a population of six heads in a row, maybe seven, maybe eight, if you're at a absolute, you know, but really you're just going to get a few, right? Now, the yeah. RNA world requires the molecular space to get about, um, you know, 30 heads in a row perfectly from mm -hmm. 30 and so so what i'm showing is that the chemistry behind that can't allow doesn't allow that to happen it's just impossible so what that what that effectively means is that um there is an upper limit on the amount of information that we we can get for free um from chemistry and it's very mm -hmm. limited and so that there needed to be um, below the rna world another living system that basically was able to undergo evolution. And it's not evident to me that that living system went through an RNA world. It's like saying, mm -hmm. whoa, I've seen my BMW or my Audi and, and, and like it's got doors and wheels and engine. There must have been a world where engines were just wandering around on wheels because we see the engine as part of the car. And it's mm -hmm. like- I see. No. So it's a statistical argument based off certain assumptions. Yes, well, the assumption that there is that chemistry is not magic, and again, like people think that some molecules are predestined to happen. That's not true. There is no little rule book on the bonds between the atoms and the quantum laws saying you will form this molecule and not this molecule. It doesn't. It's not right. What it does say is that some molecules are more stable than others, but the space of stable molecules and the space of unstable molecules is still vast. So when people start to say, oh, I think I can imagine this molecule being selected. You go, I selected. Right, now we're getting somewhere, what from? So I think there is a really nuanced statistical argument to say the chemists kind of think that you can get some complexity for free. And I'm just trying to explain to them that that is not true. It breaks the second law of thermodynamics and it breaks statistics. And, you know, um, even with a big energy source. Yeah. Yeah, 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 sure. I mean, you, 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 can, you can flick a lot of coins at once, 
but you're not gonna you're not gonna get a hundred heads heads in a row. And I mean perfectly, right? Perfectly. Otherwise, you get a different one. You just write down a number of constraints. Hmm. So, but so the the uh, I guess the image is though if you happen it, if it happened to be the case that okay, back to your poker. Is it poker where you have flushes? I don't. I don't play cards. But anyway, so let's say, for example, when you when you you get a particular hand that increases the chance of getting some other hand. This is more. This is back to the the picture. So okay. So um. So some questions outside of the beginning of life. So there are some steps in the process that, you know, we're multicellular, for example. So has beyond beyond constructing single cell organisms ha have people in the lab been able to start with single cell organisms and then construct multicellular uh, uh, I, I, I think that it's hard to um understand how that can happen um in the well no sorry it's i don't think it, it is possible to do and people have tried to make organoids and things right but these cells have already been pre-programmed to make multicellular things right so the question mm -hmm. is what do you do to your cell to program it to become multicellular now, people are obsessed with the fact that, you know, we have this transition from um, kind of one type of cell to the other, from prokaryotes to eukaryotes, and right, and, then the, and the transition to that is you have to have your DNA in a nucleus, and you have to have your mitochondria and all this stuff. Um, and and then, then you've got this transition to multicellularity and then to intelligence. And it's, it's, it, the current evidence says that life on Earth was dumb for a very long time, and then some became multicellular, and then, in, in fact, and then ultimately intelligent. We don't know that's the truth. We just know in the fossil record we haven't seen any evidence of multicellularity in animals till relatively late. Now that could be for a number of reasons. Um, it could be that um, the, the, the Earth is actually a non-typical planet in terms of its chemistry and, and the environment, or not non-typical. Sorry, let's well, forget that for a second. I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm tired. What I mean is that on Earth, the current conditions with the gravitational constant, that's so the mass of the Earth, the distance to the sun, and the lack of oxygen in the atmosphere, uh, meant that biology had to invent, uh, for intelligence, you need movement. Intelligence is problem solving. Intelligence is nothing other than problem solving, right? I know we create lots of problems for ourselves. Life needs intelligence to problem solve. Um, you need to move around to problem solve. Um, and life didn't have access to enough energy to move around for a very long time. So I think the reason why Earth isn't, wasn't intelligent for a very long time is it just didn't have access to that energy source. That doesn't mean to say that, that intelligent life isn't a lot easier in other bits of the universe. So as soon as you have locomotion and you have, you're able to make decisions, intelligence is needed. I see. So the so in terms of the uh, okay, so those are two numbers you could add into the Drake equation. So uh, the, the the origin of life and multicellular life. Which of those numbers is is larger in in your no idea. estimation? No idea. I have no idea. I mean, I wrote a paper once on the the origin of life Drake equation, and Sarah Seeger's written a, a modification to the Drake equation for looking for habitable life uh, or habitable planets. Sorry. And the Drake equation is just a statistical formulation, right, of our uncertainty. Um, and the problem is, because we only have one point, you know, it's like, it's like you're saying, you know, here you go, Lee, here's a coin, flick it. And I flick it, and I get heads. And you're like, right, tell me, without flicking the coin again, what's the probability you're going to do that? And I'm like, no, I haven't flicked the coin, you could have waited it. <laughs> so I think that yeah. that's, a, that's a very hard question to answer um, in general.
Um, and it's not that I won't answer it, it's just I don't know. And I'm really, mm-hmm. I'm, I really like making the habit of saying that I don't know, because, uh, but I want to find out. You know, I'm not, I mean, I, I love being, I love being dumb, or it, um, um, and then um, I do experiments to review, re- reduce my uncertainty. That's what we need to do. So, so, so another, another question uh, sort of akin to the, similar to the um, multicellular question is, so uh, from what I understand, I'm not a biologist, but from what I understand, our cells, each one has mitochondria inside of it. And this is, I've been told, that these have been absorbed from some other life form early on in the, in, in the history of our species. So can we think of ourselves as sort of a hybrid species for, uh, constructed from multiple different species? Or what's the best way of, of looking at that? Um, I, again, until we have other life forms that have done this, we're not going to really know. But I would, I would say that um, we are obviously hybrids. Um, we're hybrids at the molecular level, at the cellular level, at the informational level. And I think that the, the mitochondrial kind of uh, accident was fantastic for life on Earth. It, did, it allowed us to develop an entirely new technology. So um, I think, um, you know, biology likes taxonomy. And taxonomy mm-hmm. allows you to kind of make sense of things and put in a hierarchy. And obviously we need to do that to make sense of the world and categorize things. Um, is it useful to have that taxonomy? Yeah, sure. But is it in use, but if you use a taxonomy to then prevent, if you to prevent you doing experiments about other things that could have happened, then that doesn't become that's then that then that becomes a limiting feature, doesn't it? And so I think what we have to do, what my job is, is to say, okay, um, I, I'm I'm interested on in how we get to the cells here with these features. Um, we don't rule anything in, we don't rule anything out, we just try the experiments. There is so much to be learned in that Genesis experiment, right, getting to a first competent cell. Lots of people all stumble, they say, oh, you know, the origin of life is a fantastically hard problem because the cell is so complex. I mean, and that's true, but the, the cell, once it's established, is trivial, right? Well, trivial if you're using it and copying it in the context of uh, biology, really impossible if you're trying if you're Craig Venter and some synthetic biologists try to work out what it is right now that makes allows you to turn that cell on and off and replicate it. So I think what we try to do, or what we what we should all try to do, is to not worry about using current biology to limit our experiments and the way we go for the search for life. We don't even really know what life is. If you've got a hundred of my colleagues to go and say what is life, everyone would have a different answer. We should probably reflect their own bias you know in their own in their own journey and and i i'm kind of i think it's a fascinating area many people have arguments about what life isn't isn't is or isn't and that reflects a very personal quest that a lot of scientists have and a lot of human beings have to say why am i here what is the meaning of life hell why are at it what is life <laughs> so I, it's not that i'm you know I, i'm raging against the chemists i'm just trying to calibrate everyone and say well we don't really know do we we have lots of interesting stories where they tell ourselves those stories are really useful in terms of developing technologies with existing biology, but maybe we can do a little bit better than that and, and actually use our naivety more constructively to come up with a, a way of finding life in the lab. Because look, if I can come up with a way with my colleagues and we can fight, make life in the lab and we can demonstrate to people that life in the lab is possible from scratch, from sand to cells, 
Then we can put the limits on where life is likely to, or not limits, right? Well, they can free our mind and say, well, we don't need to look just for water. Maybe we'll look for this type of planet, this type of planet. Mm -hmm. Then we can start to look for evidence for life in the solar system. There must be some hint of life elsewhere in the solar system. And if not, why not? And then they, that might then tell us something about our experiments on Earth, you know. And then, obviously, we can ask the question that we're all interested in, is there intelligence anywhere? And even with that intelligence be able to it would be able to interface with it you know i think on some level plants are really intelligent very conscious but they're not conscious at the point where they can appreciate you know a discussion about well, a podcast or a zoom cast or whatever but they're relatively conscious um and that means they're able to make decisions and think about the environment the thoughts are nothing that we could ever experience um and electrons aren't conscious right only things in biology are conscious. And so I think, you know, there's a lot of deep philosophy that comes together of all of this. And so it's, it's no wonder that many people have struggled with the concepts. And all I'm trying to do is basically say, where's the anomaly? We're the anomaly, biology is anomaly. What's the experiment? What's the model? Let's try and recreate the anomaly. Hmm. Well, I, I thought what would be nice is to uh, wrap up by asking you about you know, just the direction that you, you say the next, the trajectory for the next five, 10 years, say of your experiments, what, what, what are you, what are you hoping to achieve in 10 years when you look back and you're going to be proud of <laughs> I hate some doing, certain I hate doing this Because I said in a TED talk many years ago, and people criticized me for that, you know, they, I, I gave a TED global talk, I think in 2011, 2012, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and um, Chris Anderson said to me, you know, um, you know, and I gave it on inorganic life and said, you know, he said, when, you know, and I said, I'm going to make a life form. He said, well, when are you going to have this done? And I said, well, within a couple of years. And he was like, wow. And we're now like eight, nine, ten years on. And what I actually... But that's how you get funding. Well, no, I didn't do it for funding. And I just, so I will restate that again. Is once I understand how to set up the conditions, I think so. So I, 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 um, I partly said it to provoke people and get people to to think that, that that I genuinely think, genuinely think that the idea is testable in the lab now. So that was important. But also, what I was trying to say is that once we've sorted out how to get the technology to work, we should take a few years to basically make the measurements and confirm that we can do it. You know, it's a bit like the Higgs boson. 50 years to discover it, right? And I mean, actually, CERN wasn't set up just to get the Higgs. It was CERN set up to look at the standard model, look beyond the standard model, understand how things worked in the universe. And, you know, it's an evolution of bigger experiment. Take gravity waves. The idea of gravity waves was conceived by Einstein in, I think, in maybe 20, uh, 1915, 1980, between that, that time and then almost 100 years later, we detect gravity waves. But... To detect gravity waves, we had to build, we had to basically have very good computational models, otherwise we wouldn't know what we're looking at. And we had to have incredible technology, right? Really incredible technology. So what I'm saying, and then it just took a little wee while to once the technology was up and running, I think less than a decade um, to do it, actually. I'd have to look. So what I'm hopeful for is that in the next year that we'll have our evolutionary engines up and running. In another project in my group, I built the computer and the computer is a, an engine that we can program to do all of organic chemistry. And when I set that out to do that, people said it was impossible, you can't do it, it's silly. But I only built the computer to make an artificial life origin of life system. I never designed a computer to make drugs. It just turned out when I was building the hardware, I was like, organic chemistry is like this. I can program organic chemistry. And then I realized if I went to the funders and said, hey, taxpayer, 
um, do you want to know if aliens exist? Uh, do you want to know what the origin of life is? They'd be like, not another one. Give me 10 million pounds. <laughs> Whereas I went, aha, hey, taxpayer, shall we, make, shall we discover drugs more efficiently? Shall we get chemists out of the lab, make them safe? Should we stop people um, getting, you know, um, being wasteful with some chemicals? Should we think more digitally? Blah, 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 blah. And then and come fast forward, get the computer. We get really highly trained people who can make molecules using code. Only this year has that hardware been ready. It's taken me a decade to invent it. A decade. Mm-hmm. Or actually not quite, eight years. It'll be a decade by the time it's up and running. Put it in the artificial life team and just this week... We've now built the first three rigs and they're going to be running relatively autonomously from February, March, April, COVID notwithstanding, and whatever else, the, the next apocalypse, 2021. So I would, I, expect, I would expect us to make really good progress in the next 18 months about you know, finding out what, what can we find. And then I think certainly what will happen is a number of things will happen. We'll see if we can get complexity or information generated in the process of evolution. And we'll start to be able to put limits on how, how much um, effort we have to do as a team and how, where we should make this collaborative international. And so what I think what will happen is we'll get some hints, we'll get some success. Um, there'll be no Nobel Prizes, sadly, you know, but not for me, maybe for my postdocs and my collaborators who are just geniuses in general. Uh, but we'll make progress and we'll start an international effort and we will start to, A, redefine what life is, get a better idea. B, start to put the limits on how we can make new life forms and what are the, the kind of chemistries involved. And C, start to really explain the theory that goes from the theory of the world based in physics to the theory of the world that gives us biology and show there's a disconnect there and then start to unify that disconnection. And that should happen in the next two years. Um, and within five years, you know, we really should have a big international effort. I think humanity needs a big international effort to find the origin of life. If we're excited to find the Higgs boson and to see if black holes exist, um, gravity waves, I think that we need to come up with a competent theory as a test and we need to go and do it. We want to know why we're here um, or how we got here. Why is a hard <laughs> a question, because why is different to everybody. But I think if we can show that life is an inevitable consequence of existence, I'll say that again, because that's quite a profound statement, that life, biology, evolution, is an inevitable consequence of existence, the same way in our universe as it stands, the sun burning and exploding and turning into a black hole. Well, maybe I don't know our sun, I don't know if it's big enough, but... The, the stuff that we see happening is, you know, uh, seems to be, you know, is well characterized. Physics is making us feel confident. If we can come up with an explanation that shows how life is expected to be everywhere in the universe, that might actually do something for humanity's psychology, actually. Or we might do the, we might come to the conclusion that we're incredibly rare, incredibly precious, and we should stop messing around. Maybe that's good too. I don't know. It's up to you and the people listening, watching this to decide. Escaped Sapiens.